and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuivy. I am your host. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today on the podcast, I am talking to Grant Denton. You may know Grant as the founder of the Karma Box Project. You might have seen these boxes around town, similar to a little free library with books, but instead they have food and essential supplies for our homeless community, and they're filled by folks in the community. It's a really great project. Grant and I had an awesome conversation about his own history with addiction, homelessness, and how he found his way out of that, about the founding of the Karma Box Project, the idea behind it, and his work at the Nevada Cares Campus, where he will be managing the safe camp portion, which is slated to open in phase two of that project. It's a really great conversation, a really important and timely one, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen. Before we head into the interview... Quick reminder, as always, if you enjoy this episode, share it. Let people know about it. This is still a brand new podcast. I'm always trying to get the word out, and your likes and shares and comments and reviews really do help. And now, this week's guest, Grant Denton. Well, Grant Denton, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on Reno. It's it's really awesome to have you. Thank you, Mr. Connor. Yeah, so I'd love to start by just learning a little bit about your background. So you're going to be working um, on the Nevada Cares Safe Camp. You're the founder of the Karma Box Project, but you have your own story and history around homelessness and incarceration and drug addiction and those kind of things. Can you talk a little bit about kind of those three pieces, I think, all work together where there's poverty and homelessness and there's often addiction and mental health issues. And then the the legal system gets tied into it too. And there's, you know, in and out of jail. So can you talk a little bit about just your story and kind of your experience with those things and how you've gotten out of them and brought yourself to where you are now. Absolutely. So you, you look at like those, these, all of those things, right? Homelessness, drug addiction, the legal system, mental illness, like they're all bubbles and depending on, cause it's, it's difficult. I think we're, we make mistakes when we do a broad brush stroke of homelessness and drug addiction. And we assume that everybody's, you know, on drugs or, we, we assume a lot of things. And with one broad stroke, like if you say homeless to me, I have a different picture in my head than if you say homeless to another person, if you say unsheltered to another person. And if you, and if you say drug addict, so there's different, like this looks different ways to, to people. And for my particular story, it was of course, and I think, you know, you can't group everybody into it, but for my particular story, it was, there was childhood trauma, right? There was a, you know, you come from a, a broken home, not a really good father figure it was in and out of your life. There was, um, when I was younger, I was molested. And then I wasn't a good student in school. And I think it had something to do with, maybe there might've been some attention deficit things, but back then, like they weren't really diagnosing people with that. I think that was a generation behind me when it really started, when they really started diagnosing people, but I, I couldn't sit down. I didn't learn very well. It wasn't like, I, I felt like I was a stupid kid because I just didn't get it. You know, I remember sitting in desk and watching other kids like, do the work and, and like not understanding how they were working because I couldn't figure it out. You know, if you feel like you're stupid and you feel like you're ugly, then you only have so many options, you know? And so I wasn't a very good student. I was a popular kid because I'm loud and I'm obnoxious sometimes. And I'm, and I was like a little, you know, crazy kid in school, but I didn't like excel and I didn't graduate. And right after that, I, you know, right out of high school, I got a job in nightclubs as an entertainer. I walked on stilts and breathed fire. And then how I got that was I was selling drugs in the nightclub and met a guy and we became friends. And uh, so I was, you know, drug dealer in the nightclubs and was working in there. 
tried, I, I got met a, met a lady, you know, she got pregnant and I wanted to make an honest living. It's difficult to navigate life without really properly knowing how to navigate your emotions. But all that, like, if you can't, like, manage being sad, and you should be able to manage that. We should be sad every once in a while. Like, that's it's part of the gig. Like, it's, and things aren't always going to be right. And we should be depressed or anxious. And we should experience these emotions and be able to navigate them and process them. Like, why am I sad? You know, and sit with it for a minute and have a good cry. But if, you know, for my whole life up to that point, I've just been getting high. Just I do drugs. I wasn't, like, really... I wouldn't say I was addicted to drugs yet, but I was using it not as a, I was using drugs to solve problems. It's a bad idea. You know, like if a drug is your solution and your brain's a very, very um, efficient muscle, right? It's going to go to the, every time you experience some sort of emotional cluster of emotions or things like that, we're going to try to solve the problem the best way we know how. People are like, we're, that we're wired wrong and we're not wired wrong. Our brain's doing exactly what we taught it how to do, you know, <laughs> like, and, and so we're, we're solving these problems. So I started when I was, when I tried to make an honest living, I became an electrician and, and we, you know, had a house and had a car and a truck, you know, company vehicle, but there was still like, all these things are just things, you know, I'm still Grant that has an inability to properly regulate, manage my emotions. And so when things happen, I, I was doing drugs. I was, I was doing pills. I was doing, uh, Oxycontins. And then I started to introduce meth and then uh, meth. And so you look, you look at it like that. And then you didn't spiraling down, you know, lost my wife, you know, she took the boy and then of course you lose your job and then everything is unstable. My housing was unstable because I was kicked out. My, my jobs were unstable because I couldn't really show up on time. And if you don't address these things right away, if I lose my job, because I'm doing math and irresponsible and I don't address the problem, which was doing drugs, you know, to solve my problems, then that becomes my identity. Then I'm just the guy that's constantly losing jobs. And if I lose my wife because I'm a, not a good husband, because I'm not present and I'm lying all the time about my job, then and if I don't address why I lost my wife, then that becomes who I am. I'm the guy that's always losing relationships. And before you know it, your identity is this. You got to be careful what you allow yourself to get away with because that becomes who you are if you do it for too long. You don't mm-hmm. properly address these things. And and so if there's inconsistency in everything I do because of my drug addiction, it's crazy because it'll flip. And it turns it into the only consistent thing in your life at a certain point is the drugs. We need consistency. So if like if the only consistent thing in my life is is meth and heroin and alcohol because meth does exactly what I needed to do. I have this control over it. Like I can't control my emotions. I can't control the outside world, but what I can control is how I feel when I put this drug in me. And that's a powerful thing. And so it's difficult to, so not only is it my identity, it's the only like real consistent thing in my life. So I hold on to it. Why would I let this drug go? It's the only thing that shows up for me. And so, you know, cause people are like, why don't they just stop drugs? You know, well, I don't know. If it's that easy, how do you, you know, some people have trouble changing their freaking toothpaste, you know, right? like, I don't want the tartar control. I need the whitening, you know, change is, is difficult and it's all, you know, and it's when it's your identity and it's the only consistent thing in your life. It's difficult to change. And so I spent nine years you know, on and off the streets in and out of the legal system and, and the legal system, because if I can't hold a job and I don't have any access to real money and I'm running out of resources, 
sometimes I, I have you have to you have to break the law. You have to steal some things. You have to break some windows to get some stuff because now what's important to me. And so it's it's just it became part of it for me. And I'm not saying that every drug addict breaks the law, but a lot of times that's where it ends up. And what happened with me is that that breaking the law enough was forced me into a into a place where I had to go to had to go to rehab. You know, you go to rehab and you complete this class or you complete this uh, drug court or you're done. You're going to prison. And so that's the fear motivation, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, you do this or you go to prison. And fear motivation is the strongest motivation in the world, but it only lasts as long as the threat. (laughs) So so, um, I was in this fear motivation because of drug court. I was forced to, you got to show up to all your classes on time. You got to show to your counselor's meeting. You got to pee clean. And by the time I got in the drug court, I was like, I was ready. I was done. I was actively ready to change who I was because part of that was because when I was in jail, I started to read. I started to read, read and read. And the thing was, is I didn't, like I would read a whole chapter and not know what I just read, you know, and I would go back and I would read the chapter that I read and I wouldn't remember anything. And I'm like, how did I just read a whole chapter and not remember stuff? Why have it? My mind is really active and it's other places. And so I can read something, but be thinking about something else. And so I had to teach myself to like, remember things that I'm reading. And so I would, uh, and I have time to do it. Right? So mm-hmm. I would sit at my, my bunk and I would read a sentence and then I would write it out. I would read a sentence and I would write it out. And that's how I would remember the things that I read is I would just plagiarize the whole freaking book. <laughs> it's, but I was learning how to learn. I was learning my unique way of learning. That's just how I do it. Like people learn differently. People are so different that like, because I'm not a read it one time and remember it, dude, I thought I was stupid. But I just realized that like, I, you know, this is when I'm 34 years old, I'm 34 years old before I realized like, Hey, I might not be stupid. And I'm, you know, and I was writing it down and I was reading about mindfulness and about universal law and about how what I do impacts the world around me. When you start to really wrap your head around the impact that you have, it can be scary but it also can be powerful and scary that how much damage we do if we're not careful to the people close to us. And, you know, they can trickle out to the universe if you're not careful, but like empowering, because if, if I could do this much damage, what can I do if I turn it around? What can I do if I like was actually doing good things and kind things? And that really changed me. That was it. Like, Mm -hmm. wow. Certain point in your life, you think you're screwed because you've done so much damage. I'm 34 years old. I don't really know any, trade i don't I've ever adulted you know like right. um i can't even manage my emotions like i'm screwed but then you learn like you learn that you can learn and you learn that like your brain you know there was this commercial when i was a kid and i'm sure you remember it with the egg oh you yeah know, the, the, your brain on drugs this is your brain you throw it on a frying pan like this is your brain on drugs and it's true it does fry your brain drugs fry your brain but that was it. And the commercial was over. Commercial was over. And there's no, nothing after that. So it like make, paints this picture that once you do drugs, your brain is fried and you're fucked. That's it. It's a scary thought. And I really like, I remember getting clean in the course of this nine years, like stop using, but thinking like, well, you know, I fried my brain. Where can somebody with a fried brain do? Like I'm, I'm limited as to what I can do because I like really believe like, um, so the commercial like made me feel like there wasn't an out. And I'd done so many drugs, like, fuck, that's it. My brain's done. And then you also look at it right about the same time, there was this campaign that says, just say no. Remember that? Mm-hmm. 
And it seems so simple. How come I just can't say no? And you look at all these other people who you partied with in high school. Like, I remember doing meth with that guy. How come he's a real estate agent? You know, I remember partying with that dude. How, how come he owns his own business? Like, how come they can say no and I can't? So what that this was separated you from the rest of the group. If you couldn't say no, there's something wrong with you. They didn't tell us was that we couldn't say no, not because we're bad people. It's just we have just a maladaptive way of responding to the world around us. And we use this drug not just to get fucking high, right? Drugs, it's not just about getting high at a certain point, especially when you're messing your life up. It's about solving problems, you know? And if mm-hmm. our brain is efficient and our brain's doing its job, it's going to solve problems. But I thought the counter. I thought that I was stupid. I thought there was something wrong with me. I thought, I'm not blaming Nancy Reagan for my drug addiction. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> the, I'm just saying, like, there were these these things contributing. We looked at it differently. So I just spent years on the on the streets. But when I went, got locked up, and they gave me that option to either go to drug court or go to prison. Like, dude, I'll go to drug court. And and I had I was motivated by fear in the beginning. Like I wanted to change, but I didn't know what it was. And I remember asking my my mentor at the time, I'm like, why is it that people go all the way through drug court and, and probation and when they, and they're just crushing it. And then you could, would you, you would see it, you'd see guys on a program just do great, right? They're passing all the drug tests. They're meeting all the classes. They're doing all the things. But when they graduate, they take a picture with a judge and they smile and he posts it on Facebook and everybody's happy. And like, I finally get my life back. Two weeks later, they're back on drugs. Why is that? And it's like I said, it's, and she told me, she's like, it's, it's fear motivation. Fear is the strongest motivation in the world, but it also only lasts as long as the threat. So once the threat's gone, we are not motivated to stay clean. And she, and she told me, she's like, in this moment, like right now, while you're inside of this fear motivation, you better figure out your growth motivation. Like what's, what's bigger than you. And if you can identify that you're going to succeed. So I spent like eight months like in my head, like, oh God, I'm panicking, I'm panicking. Like, what am I going to do? I don't want to like lose my motivation. I want to, you know, and, and, um, and I was listening to books in the morning and I was just trying to find out what my motivation was like books about personal development, books about like motivation videos. And, you know, I was listening to Eric or Les Brown and Eric, Eric Thomas and Napoleon Hill and all, you know, Zig Ziglar. And I'm like trying to like listen to all these things and learn what, what I can. And then eventually I, um, went to my mom's house and when I was there and at this time I'm working in sober living, but when I was there, my mom told me a story about, cause she, she wouldn't let me come home. I was actually, had a, they had a trespass order on me to where I couldn't go to her house. Cause I was, I'd, I mean, think about that. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to go to my mom's house. Um, cause I was doing that much damage and um, she finally let me come over and she was even nervous to let me come over. And I'd been clean for eight months and, uh, and she just told me a story of her version of my overdose. There was one time that I, I overdosed and long story. So I, I was at a friend's house and I shot up and I went in, I, I overdosed and she called the ambulance, but she also knew my mom because she was my friend from high school. And so she like messaged my mom on Facebook and says, Grant just overdosed in my living room. He's not doing well. You're my version of the story is I shot up in her bathroom. I wake up four days later in the hospital I eat some mashed potatoes that are next to the, you know, I wake up and there's this food next to me. I eat a little bit of that. I have warrants, so I'm scared. And so I just take all the things off of me. And in an hour, you know, I take, you know, I unplug myself from these machines and I just leave in the gown, 
and everything. And I, in an hour, I'm back down at Jerry's Nugget with a needle in my arm. I mean, I still had the stickers on me, you know, and I'm back down getting high. That's my version of it because all I know is that I went to sleep for a little while and that's it. It's four days later. My mom's version is she gets that call and she's hears that I'm not doing good and I wasn't doing good. And she sat at the, the foot of the bed watching her son die for four days, you know? Mm-hmm. And when she told me that, because I had no clue when she told me that, I was like, what? Like, like it just shook me up. I didn't realize like the impact that, that I had on the world around me. And I remember waking up and calling her in the hospital and she didn't answer the phone because she had already left. She, they told her I was going to be fine, that she can go home. But she knew that when I was calling her, I was calling her for a ride or for money. So she didn't answer the phone. And at that time, I was like, my mom doesn't love me. She doesn't care about me. But I had no clue that I was there for four days. And she's sitting there at the foot of the hospital bed watching me die, you know? Mm-hmm. So that was like, that was it. My growth motivation is making a positive impact on the world around me. And that is it. And and and, and I can use my knowledge from the streets and being a drug addict as a vehicle to help other people. That's it. Yeah. So then, then from then I just, my real adult life started. I mean, I've been 42, I'll be 43 in August and I've been an adult roughly around five years, you know, (laughs) right. Better late than never. Uh, no, I think that what you say about having that growth motivation is really important. And is that something you think is missing from, some of the outreach that we're doing or some of the programs that we have, because we have this very punitive criminal justice system that, you know, you've been a part of. Have you found that our systems that we have to supposedly help people or stop crime, those kind of things, are they missing an essential component by not making people kind of focus on how they're going to improve their lives over time and having this like forward thinking vision. I did an episode with Catherine Getsky from the, um, the hopeful cities project. And we talked about mm-hmm. hope being this kind of forward thinking, positive mindset, like looking to the future and having goals to get to some positive future. Is that something that is not talked about enough with people who are struggling with things like homelessness and addiction? So, you, you know, what's interesting is like they say in the addict world that, if you continue doing a behavior despite its negative consequences, you're addicted, right? And it's weird if you look at our system, we continue doing the same shit and there's negative consequences. And the consequences, like if we're doing the same thing and expecting different results, then you're also in, is it, uh, Einstein says this, right? right? Doing the same thing and expecting different results is, is insanity. If you look at it, like we're doing it as people, but we're also doing it as a, as a system, right? We're, we're like also like doing the same shit. And expecting different results and clearly it's not like something isn't working and i and if you break it down to like a system or policies like i i I get the system part but i think what's most important what's a tangible fruit is right now is how we change our language how like us so the people that are working directly with the folks what is our narrative what is like how do we engage like how do we like how do we paint the picture and we have the the capacity to do that if you're working directly with this group, you have the capacity to like control the narrative. And a lot of us, we, we put our own ideas of things. So if I think that the system's broken, then I'm going to like relate that to this person who's already not doing well in life. Like what helped me wasn't like somebody convincing me that the system was broken. Cause I already think it sucks. What helped me was that somebody convinced me that I have the capacity to grow within a broken system. 
Mm, okay. Doesn't matter. System could be the shittiest. We could be in the, the economy. We could be shit. We could be in a recession. But if you do it right, you can actually grow in this moment. And it took the idea was that it took the security, like you know, people think you know it could be job or relationships or a good economy and that that gives you the security. I had mentors teach me that it, the security had to be in me. I had to be secure with myself and what, what I, my abilities and what I could do. And, and this happens all the time. I see it with my employees, my outreach employees. Like I've had one take take somebody to a, you know, to a treatment center, and because of COVID, they had open beds, but they weren't doing intakes. And she called me up. She's like, "Hey, these guys, they got open beds. They told me they have open beds, but they're not doing an intake." And she had the client right next to her, the person that was like, she was trying to get in the bed, somebody that's living on the streets and was addicted, and they just wanted to get off drugs and wanted to turn their life around right now, but they're not doing intakes at this place. And she calls me and she's like, they're not doing intakes. And, you know, they do have open beds, but, you know, they just really broke his trust. I'm like, wait a minute, are you standing right next to him? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, no, you're breaking his trust. You don't say it like that. You don't word it like that. It's, you take this exact same situation and you put different lenses on and you say something like, listen, dude, they're not doing intakes right now, but we do got you signed up. So let's go and find another. Let's see if we can find a few more places to go to. And you're not in any worse of a situation. We're just, we're going to, when they do open up, which could be in two weeks, dude, two weeks from now, you'll be in here, man. So we got you and whatever we can do to help you in that time. But you don't like say, screw the system, you know, and these guys are breaking his hope. And I remember one time I was in a sitting in a break room and across the office from me was um, was a case manager and I can hear her having a conversation with somebody and the person that was in the office was uh, was homeless and she's talking about her visit to the doctor and when she went to the doctor and the doctor asked her you know what her address was and she said the record street address doctor was like are you homeless and she's like yeah and she said that after that moment that the doctor was just really mean to her and short and, and that and what the case manager said was like you know what you should not be mean to you what's his name what hospital is he at he's gonna have to pay for this he can't do that i really believe like that, that was the wrong approach i think what should have happened was like you know what he can't do that to you. He can't speak to you and down to you because you're homeless. But what's going to help this situation is for number one, how you receive it. Because it's going to take more energy to change how that guy feels about homeless people than it is for you to change your situation. Right? Let's, let's adjust this. Let's not put energy into getting this guy in trouble because that's not our gig. Of course, should, nobody should ever like talk about talk down on homeless people once they find out, you know, that their situation, no one should ever do that. It's terrible. But we can't change that. Like what we can do is change us. What are you going to do? You're going to go around and do a campaign to change the way every doctor feels about every homeless person. You can't do it. Like it's not going to happen. We have to change how we see ourselves and what our abilities are. So this case manager, you know, rallying this girl up about like this doctor being mean to homeless people is a terrible idea. Like that's what you're doing. That's the wrong campaign. Campaign should be how can you rile her up and get her excited about changing her life, get her excited about how how the way she sees her role in her life and, and, and helping her put different lenses on, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's something in the the culture of the community among people who are homeless or drug addicted or um, living in these circumstances between each other, like in their own conversations when you were dealing with these challenges was there support or help among people who you met while you were in that world? Or was there a, like that same kind of 
hopelessness as a kind of standard way of thinking about the world? And and how do we change that? Is that part of the puzzle is not necessarily case managers and volunteers and organizations trying to convince people of these you know positive mindsets and better ways of thinking of things? Or is part of it creating that culture among people who are actually in it day to day and having, you know, people able to help each other? Here's a, the thing is uh, the street level folks, outreach, case managers, case managers are relatively street level. A lot of them operate from, from their offices, but they do. It's so street to here. They're, they're the, you know, they're the bridge between a lot of these things. I think where you start is how does this group see their role? How do they see their role? Right now, a case manager, an outreach person is going to get paid exactly the same, whether this person succeeds or not. I, I get a check. You know, I'm getting paid whether this person gets off the streets or whether I make this or whether I help this individual see that, you know, their value or whether I, you know, get this person to their appointment. I'm getting paid no matter what. And that's a bad outlook on it because there's no skin in the game, you know, mm-hmm. and and how do you get people to have skin in the game. Well, I think it's the same way that my mentor has got me to look past this fear motivation. I think that they like, you have a bigger than self goal. And if we can help the, you know, these workers that are actually working with the population, if we can paint a picture to them and help them understand the value of their role, then I think it'll change things. We don't know. It's not as much case, man. We need life coaches, right? We forgot how to live in this social bubble. We do really well down here. But the idea is that we're not trying to create the most successful homeless people. We're trying to integrate these folks back into this uh, social, our social bubble, which would be this, you know, working, being self-sufficient, living independently. If you look at it, we're all in a boat and this boat's destination is a healthy community. That's it. We're in a boat and our destination is healthy community. And we all have to row to the best of our ability. Some of us row fast and hard and just get it. And some of us just a couple of couple of rows a minute, but we're rowing, right? And the second that someone in this boat stops rowing or starts rowing against the current, it falls on us to get this person to start rowing again. And it benefits the whole group. So our role should be not like, or if we if we just need to understand our role. We need to understand that like it's important that like getting them to roll. If I can get somebody that stopped rowing in the boat to row again, then I'm helping the group. It's not about me getting a check. Doesn't doesn't help the group at all. <laughs> it's not helping. Like I just get a fucking check. That's it. But if I can help somebody to row again, then I'm really creating value to the boat. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I was wondering about is you know, the, the basic needs, like it's hard to function when you are hungry or when you are unsafe or when you don't have shelter, you know, these, these basic essentials, like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs idea. Like you have these basic Mm -hmm. fundamental things you need before you can reach your, you know, relationships and self-actualization and community. You need to be fed. You need to be housed. You need to have the basics. Would you consider this growth mindset or this attitude towards doing better for the world and for yourself as one of those kind of base level things that people need to climb out. Obviously food is the most essential thing. Like you will, you know, you'll die without food. You can, you can survive poorly without hope, but do you think that that hope and growth attitude are essential early components of climbing out? I'm absolutely convinced of it. It's like, let's look at like this. I have a guy that works for me that lives on the river and we were doing this training about goal setting and things like that. And like, yeah, he had a really difficult time 
setting goals because it was difficult for him to like think outside of today and even mentioned he's like dude it takes two hours to shave for me because i have to go here and i have to and he's right like it does take that long and it does you're you have you're guarded on the streets right it's you get there's two things you can't do at once and it's grow and protect yourself right because when you grow your underbelly is exposed and you're vulnerable then you have to be open for these things you have to be open and accept things and learn but when you're protected you're not learning too much you have a single-minded thought and it's protect yourself and you have this laser focus on staying safe and that's it and um, there's not much growth going on there so when you're down you know in a tent when you're down just getting your basic needs met you're not going to grow too much but what we found was that like when i talked to him enough the rest of the group was visualize yourself in 2022 june 2022 and talk explain to me what you're doing that day and i could barely get him to do it but but he was like i can't see myself i'm not going to be housed i'm not going to this and that and i'm like okay let's just visualize yourself standing in the house right now just forget everything about how you think you're going to get there forget all the trials that you have to go through to get there right now just see yourself there and with a little bit of conversation he did see himself there and he started to reverse engineer how he got there you know it is it is possible is it like teaching people how to see themselves a year from now is that going to change homelessness no but we know that it is like just from doing this and working with him it painted a picture to his head now that person who was standing in that house is a that's the quantum him and I, and I told them, I'm like, you, you, know, you can see yourself a year from now. You only do what that person would do right now. Cause you just, you just painted a picture and it's real now. It's just the quantum real. Like now you just have to manifest it and how to manifest it because you can see that guy is only do what that guy would do. And again, I'm not like saying that this is going to, you don't go out and talk to a homeless person who's addicted to drugs or an alcoholic and be like, visualize yourself a year from now in a house. And they're going to be like, pop. And it's not going to happen like that. But we, all you have to do is, you know, it's the, the aggregation of marginal gains. If I can just make you do some marginal improvement today, then we did something. And then tomorrow, just a little bit. And then tomorrow, just a little bit. Sometimes it takes nine months from handshake to opening somebody's door in their own apartment or opening someone's door in a program or getting like, sometimes it takes a while, but as long as you're, we're still working, you know, mindset and belief systems are a difficult thing to change. Try to convince a Christian that, you know, that Jesus isn't the son of God. Try to convince somebody that thinks that they're, that they're worth nothing, that they're worth, that's a belief system. I believe that I ain't shit. So try to convince me that I'm, that I, you know, that I, that I carry values is, is going to be difficult. You know, it's so like, it's, mm-hmm. and I know that like I bounce from faith because, but that's what it is. It's what we believe and our belief systems are the, the answer is right outside of our belief systems, you know, it's right outside of what we believe. So there's this big piece of improving mindset and looking forward and, and motivation. But then the other piece is providing those resources and programs and things. So that's what you have been working on in recent years now. So since you've been clean and, and been housed and all of that, you started the Karma Box Project, which is a very direct kind of mutual aid thing where people are providing essentials for people that need them. So can you talk a little bit about how the Karma Box project works and who participates in it and, and where did the idea come from? What's the background on it? 
the background is, is that I was working for the Life Change Center doing a volunteer program for the, the clients there. I was taking folks that were going to the, it's a, it's, a, it's a methadone clinic, but they also provide counseling, they provide groups, they provide job training, all this stuff. They're just, it's a really good uh, agency. I had a volunteer program where I was taking folks that were clients there and getting out volunteering in the community. And the reason that we started that was because if you look at like my nine years and a lot of these things we create, I just um, taken from like what worked and what didn't work for me and what did I need when I was on the streets. One thing for sure was that when you stop using drugs, like when I would stop heroin or when I would stop meth and stop drinking, I'm still me. I just stopped doing drugs. Do you know, like nothing's changed. We have to change everything. We have to change our behavior. Like if that's it too, like the drugs are, it's, it's about how we behave and how we, and so like if, if I just stopped doing drugs, I just stopped doing drugs. I didn't become a, a, a better person, you know, and it's, it's difficult to integrate yourself, especially if you've been doing damage to the community, you know, by breaking the law or sometimes not contributing could be doing damage. And so it's difficult when you've done so much damage in your life to integrate back into a community that you feel like you've been taking from for so long. So the volunteer program was designed to get like people who feel like they've been taken from the community in their addiction or whatever to give back. And once you start giving back, now you're paying this off. Now you're balancing this, this karma or whatever, you know? And so we were doing a volunteer program and in that they have a life change center in Carson and we brainstormed with some of the clients out there about like, what would they want to do? And they're like, well, let's do library boxes. And I'm like, wait a minute, what if we do boxes where you can put food and clothes and, you know, socks and hygiene items and that. What if you, you know, we do a program where we could do that and we'll make those boxes. And the idea was that we just put it in, that, you know, in Carson, they have all these weeklies down that strip. And so I was like, we could put it at these weeklies and we would fill it. But what happened was the first place we got to put it was an AMPM. And we, we put it there and I put a note up on the, you know, the checkout stand. I put a note right there that says, hey, box outside, it's called the karma box. And if you, if you have an extra dollar, buy a granola bar for someone that needs it, buy a drink for someone that needs it, or you can buy, you know, toothpaste or deodorant or whatever, and just put it in that box for anyone that needs. And then a week later, I came with the group to fill it because that was all we were going to do. We were just going to fill it. That was our role. It was already full. And like I asked the dude behind the counter, I'm like, hey, man, like what, what, what happened? Who's been filling that? Have you been doing it? He's like, oh, no. And he pointed to this trailer park that was behind the the AMPM and was like this lady named Sandra. She came in, she ripped the thing off, went back to her buddies in the trailer park and showed it to him. And they, and this is a, mind is it's a trailer park, low income. These guys are up, you know, they are fixed, low fixed income and they're operating like some of them food stamps. And she encouraged them all to like buy things and put it in there. Cause she thought it was just such a great idea. And um, I'm like, wow, that's crazy. Like, this group because you think it's the haves helping the have-nots well these these folks are on you know they're using food stamps and they're still giving and so like it right then you see the value of how people feel when they give and when they help these seeds of civic responsibility like right now i'm doing something and you paint a picture like that like a lot of us because we see we want to help we just need a platform and what it did was give just you know people an easy platform to do for the community. So we made another box and we set it up at the um, Gourmet in Reno. And then that blew up. There were people like just feeling that. And then another one at the 
ITEX in Midtown, and then another one, and then another one. And, and it was driven by the community. I wasn't even building the boxes. This guy out in Washoe Valley, his name's Mike Reed, just started building boxes and artists. And it actually started with his daughter. His daughter was the first one to paint a box. Her name's Emily Reed. She just, she painted a box. And then another artist painted a box. And then all these people started like buying in to the project. And when you do things like that, it gives you ownership of the community. They, they say that a community is just a, a structure of belonging. And if you can give someone a sense that they, you know, the sense of belonging and it strengthens the the social fabric mm-hmm. and it worked. So for two years, they, you know, you went from one box to 40 boxes in Northern Nevada. And then now we've transitioned into, into doing outreach in that along the river and in the, in the camps. And, and we have a work program called the river steward program where folks that are living in the camps are able to, to work with us and help clean, clean the river up. Awesome. Yeah, I think that the the Karma Box idea is really cool. I have a little free library in front of my apartment that I put up a few years ago. And then when I started seeing the Karma Boxes pop up a couple of years ago, it just seemed to make so much sense because we already have this concept of helping people by putting something that they need in a place where they can just go get it for that to be extended to these essential items for people who are homeless. Just it makes so much sense. And I'm really glad to see that it's been so successful and that a big component of it is people that are trying to give back to the community, whatever their income status is, things like that. I think it makes sense that that sense of contributing gives a sense of purpose and, uh, you know, a, a general positive feeling that makes you want to do more of it. Let's talk a little bit about the the Nevada Cares campus and the safe camps and stuff, because that's the big thing that's going on in the Reno homelessness situation right now is this Nevada Cares campus that just opened their first phase, if I have this right. So they just opened the first phase that's got beds for 900 people and it's got space for couples. It's got space for pets. It's relatively low barrier, I think, for people that need to stay there. It's uh, There's not a lot of restrictions and barriers. So that's a good thing because I obviously we want people to be able to take advantage of things like this. And then the next phase includes this safe camp concept, which I am a huge fan of. I've heard of this in other cities. Can you talk a little bit about what the the safe camp is and what your role is going to be in it and kind of uh, the background on, on what that is and how it works? Let's look at uh, an unsafe camp, right? Let's look at like what we've, what we already have, right? Mm-hmm. So under the Wells bridge, right? There's this, this camp, and it's where people were going. And it seemed like the most efficient place, or not the most efficient, the most, um, it makes the most sense that if you were unsheltered and you had a tent to go to this place, because it's relatively out of sight, out of mind. There's a big space, right? It's close to the river. The river provides this, it's mother nature's infrastructure. So it has running water, there's trees, there's, you know, it's, and so the, like this is an ideal spot. But the thing is, is that, how, how, how do I put this? It, it grew really fast because it's an ideal spot. And also because the, you know, the CDC during COVID was like, you know, you can't like, we can't break up camps around cities because, you know, now you have people that could potentially have COVID spreading COVID. Uh, so it's, it's better just keep people in one place. The, the advantage of having a camp is that it's, it's a, it's a form of housing. Yeah. It's, 
has people in one spot. So if you're an outreach worker, you know where to find somebody. If their name's on a list for housing, if they're, they have an appointment come up, you know where to find them. The disadvantage to that is that there's survival mechanisms to stay on the street. So let's look at this. The four constants. If you look at constants, and you can say this to anybody living on the streets or anybody that's unsheltered, the four constants are the first one is that you're subject to the elements, right? Whatever the weather is. Um, The second one is that you will get your stuff stolen because that's how we shop, right? The third one is that you're going to have to physically defend yourself at some point because that's conflict resolution. And then the fourth one is that you're always on someone else's property, So you might get asked to move a lot and that's unstable and that's inconsistent. And what the safe camp does is it takes care of three of the four constants of being homeless, right? It is a place where you're not going to get asked to move, where you can feel secure in that spot. It's a place where there is going to be safety there, safety from conflicts. There's going to be a, you're not going to get your tent burned down because somebody thought you stole their bike right? You're not going to get beat up because you had an altercation with somebody. There's going to be staff there to help navigate these, these things. And you're not going to get your stuff stolen. Like it's difficult to get a job when you're living in a tent, when you leave for work and somebody rifles through your tent. It's knowing that like, it's difficult. Like I remember being on the streets, I had to take everything I owned. Like it's, it's not a good look to show up to a job interview with three backpacks, you know? And that's just it these three or four constants that limit people like let's we talk about barriers like partners uh property and pets like those are barriers but these are these are constants for sure and and what that what this safe camp is going to do is knock three of those out you're going to be subject to the elements of course because you're in a tent that's just what it is but it creates an alternative outside of the shelter The idea is that we create as many alternatives to getting people to a secured place so that we can do the work necessary to get them to independent living. When you talk to people that are, that are like, you know, the shelter isn't where they want to go. It's there's safety issues. There's crowd issues. There's mental illness and things like that. Well, all of these things are on the streets and in the camps. They're actually two. They're actually, it's multiplied. Like it's, it's less safe in a camp because there's no oversight 100% it's, it's just, it's left safe. The law in the camp is fire, you know, and, and fire and fists. That's it. And it's not a safe place. And it's crowded in camps. Your one tent is surrounded by seven other tents. If one tent catches fire, the whole lineup catches fire before the fire department gets there. A lot of the fires out there aren't heating fires. They're conflict resolution fires, you know, there's, and, and so there's all the things that, prevent people from going into a shelter are actually present out in the, in the, uh, in the illegal camps, but where we make a mistake as advocates is that we paint a picture that the shelter or the safe camp is the destination. The shelter should never be your destination. The shelter should be a launch pad. Your destination should be independent living. Mm-hmm. That's it. And if we paint this picture like, ah, oh, you don't want to go to the shelter. Well, nobody wants to go to a shelter. You don't have to stay there. You don't, you know, in the process of a different life, you know, you know, the idea isn't to go to college to live in college forever. The idea is to go to college to like use that as a springboard. And I'm not like paralleling the two. I'm just saying it's part of a process, you know? Mm-hmm. So what the shelter does is it is low barrier, which means that like there are going to be people on drugs there. There are going to be people that drink there, but 
if we if you take a place and take the you know say you can't drink or do drugs here then that's a drug treatment program and we're not fighting the war on drugs right now not in this situation right now we're fighting the war on on homelessness so in order to fight that you have to set up a scenario that makes sense for as many people as possible having said that it falls on us to change how we speak about the shelter like the listen you got two reasons why you're homeless one is it's either situational right the rent was raised COVID happened you lost your job all these things or it's behavioral and and having said that if it's behavioral and you take a, a group of people that don't resolve conflict very well and put them in one group it is going to be difficult but it's not any less pleasant than it is in the streets without security without some sort of when I say security I mean like not security guards I mean like without feeling like there is a sense of safety, knowing that there is some oversight there and that somebody could protect you if you, if you asked for it. And it's, that's just what it is. It's, it's part of the process. It's, it's a, it's a launch pad and it's, you know, most situations aren't the most pleasant, but the shelter is a good place. And there are people there that care and there are people there that are helping and the safe camp is going to be a place where they're, we're not, the goal isn't to take you from the safe camp and, put you in a, in the shelter next, you know, they, there's this, it is going to be a, an ecosystem of tiered mobility. So if from the, the safe camp, the, the goal is to get you into independent living straight from there. That makes sense. I, I think that the argument against the shelter that a lot of, you know, some folks have as advocates is that like, you know, people are crowded and it's this and that it's not the destination. It's a launch pad and it is a good and safe place with, with oversight. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's this, as someone who's, I have relatively little experience, you know, knowing homeless people or are seeing these places up close. So I'm always hesitant to make any assumptions about the way that they work. But one of the things that seems to occur to me is that the the notion that everyone should see the shelter as the next or the immediate step for them is not actually true for people that are, you know, situationally homeless. Maybe they're staying on a friend's couch. Maybe they're staying in a car that maybe like a bed in a shelter is not a step up or a helpful thing for them. And there are other paths for them. And I think some people may be making this assumption that, we want everyone in the shelter, that it's warehousing, that everyone who uh, who's homeless in any kind of circumstance is just like, just cram them all in a shelter. And I don't think that is actually, from talking to you, it doesn't sound like that's the goal or the idea in any kind of way, but I think it gets painted that way sometimes. Because the shelter is so big, because it has so many beds, because it's been such this big project, I think people start to make this assumption that it is, that it's looked at as the only way and the big thing and the only thing when really it should be or hopefully is part of a bigger picture of multiple paths and solutions for individuals with different circumstances, right? And that's it too. So like if, so, so the shelter needs to be an accessible place at all times. So if you have a lot of beds, it's accessible at all times, you know, if you only have limited beds, it won't be accessible at all times. And having limited beds stops the flow, right? It stops mm-hmm. the flow. And, and part of that flow, like what's going to determine whether it's a warehouse or whether it's a place for people to grow is falls on us, right? It fa- falls on us and how that, how we like paint the picture, right? And it also falls on like us working with them. Like, are we going to get them to the shelter and our job is done? Or are we going to get them to the shelter and, and try to 
try to move them out into a better structure of living or independently like that falls on us and if you can the idea isn't like let's get in the shelter get in the shelter the idea is if i can see find somebody in a tent that they're just they do have an income they just lost their id and they can't get their check and they don't have a place to send their mail or, or they can be employed they just need an id or they or they can get an apartment they just need a help with a down payment because they have been working it's not the, the you know the, this individual let's get it let's get you an independent living let's get you an apartment let's get you into a maybe a group home, maybe a hotel until we can get you into Sage Street, until we get you into tiny homes, until like, like there's so many options that it's not always the shelter. The shelter, what's going to make the shelter good is that it's accessible at all times. And part of being accessible at all times means that we have a lot of beds, you know? So right now, if I'm ready to get off the street, if the weather's terrible, if there's a traumatic cue for change, which means, you know, like maybe I just got, you know, fight last night. Maybe I just got assaulted. Maybe somebody just burned my tent down or sold my stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I'm done. You can go right now to the shelter because they do have a lot of beds, you know? Mm-hmm. So the idea is to fill the shelter up like as fast as possible. Just get 900 people in here immediately. No, that's not it. It's just to be accessible. Yeah. Well, I think that that's one of the concerns that I've always had when I hear the words, the shelters are full, which hopefully we never have to hear again now because the idea that the shelters are full really forces people to the worst kinds of living on the street, right? Like when you literally have nowhere to go, that that is even a possibility is really gross to me. The fact that we have for a very long time had a a pretty normal response of saying like the shelters are full. So there's just, there's straight up zero options. So I think that the scale of the shelter, I am glad to hear that it is big enough that we don't have to worry about there literally being no option, even if it's not the best option for everybody, even if it's, you know, if people have certain concerns or if people like their independence, I think that's a big part of it too, is people that are used to a kind of like no rules environment might have a hard time with, you know, a place that has some structure but at least it exists. At least it is there at the end of the day. So I'm, I'm very encouraged by the, you know, the scale of it, even though, you know, some people are concerned about that. I think it's a good thing that we don't have to worry about leaving people with literally zero options. Being in this field, you have an opportunity to watch people deteriorate, being out in the elements and being out in, a, in an unsafe place where you're, open to attack and you're open to being stolen from and it's difficult to like right when you start to move in one way and a lot of times there's this there's we kind of drag each other down i guess what i'm trying to say is this isn't an easy subject to deal with and and it's not an easy subject to talk about because while talking about what's in my head and how i'm visualizing something i could be leaving out a a, another group we haven't spoke about vets and we haven't spoke about the physically disabled, like there's, when you talk about this group and finding a solution for one, you could be, if you blanket it and finding a solution for one, you could be causing another one a disservice, mm-hmm. right? When you, when, when trying to find this, the solution for this one, it could cause problems for that one. If you just do a broad you know, brush stroke, it is a difficult thing to talk about. It is complex. And I, I think that I like I truly believe that the city of Reno, the city of Sparks, and the county are really leaning in and they're doing the best they can and they're trying new ideas and they're working with people. They're, we've done homework on so many safe camps around the country. They're bringing in experts to like help answer questions and help 
guide us to being the best that we can be. Of course, there's going to be like hiccups and things like that. And of course, in the process of helping this person has to be different than helping this person. We have to find those dynamics and there's going to be like some trial and error, but you, you got to, group and you got cities that are like committed to doing whatever they have to do this is a hot item right now you know mm-hmm. we're trying to do the best we can to get ahead of it i believe that you know homelessness has been around forever ever since we've been in caves there's always been that one guy that just couldn't figure out getting into a cave you know or he couldn't you know like there's it's always been around and, and you're not gonna ever there's not going to be zero. You're not going to eradicate homelessness. As long as we have mental illness, as long as we have drug addiction, as long as we have the ability to make terrible decisions, because we do sometimes. It's what it is. We make bad decisions. The wonderful thing about bad decisions is that it's an indicator that we need help and that we can be improved and that we can be corrected. And so knowing these things that like will happen and as long as the, you know, the economy can fall and as long as there's pandemics, things are going to happen and there's going to be homelessness. The idea is to not be reactive, but to be proactive and get ahead of it. We have to have, so we create this, this system where when somebody does fall, that there's a clear way out. I would say that I'm a relatively higher functioning person now. I, I pay my rent, I'm a dad, I, I have a car, I have a job, um, and I have trouble navigating the system. I have trouble, you know? And so like it, it all comes down to being proactive and setting up a clear path mm-hmm. for people when they do it's, it, we have to hold space for rock bottoms. That's it. People are going to hit rock bottoms and that is all you, you have to expect that. And we have to hold space for it. But having said that, we also have to be proactive and get ahead of it and set a clear path for all of the different spokes in the will, for all of the different variables of homelessness. Is it mental illness? Is it just drug addiction? Is it co-occurring? Is it, you know, is it, is it just situational? Like, how can we, how, how about instead of putting you, you know, when somebody comes to the shelter, instead of saying, hey, here's a bed, we, we find out, well, why are you here? Where did, like, how did you become homeless? Oh, is it because you, did, you haven't been able to pay rent? Do you still have a job? Do you this and that? Like maybe like we do diversion programs and they already do that. They're doing that. I'm just mm. I'm saying like there's, there's ways to get ahead of it. And that's what we're moving towards right now. Yeah. Where do you think the bottlenecks or the challenges are in creating those paths for all these different people who have different circumstances? Is it there's not enough people? Is it there's not enough money? Is it there's not enough research into the best ways of dealing with these things? Because it seems like we have a, you know, there's a ton of really smart people. There is money that sometimes comes into creating programs and shelters and things like that. So, I mean, it's a very, uh, this question sounds super dumb, but why haven't we figured it out yet? If we have all this research and all this knowledge and occasionally this money Obviously, there's a lot of systems that are broken, but what's the bottleneck? Like, what's the missing piece, in your opinion, to really find solutions that are long-term, that work, that are reproducible? Like, what's what's missing? There's a, there's a couple things. We're missing providers. We need more programs. We need more mental health experts. We need more sober living houses. We need more group homes. We need more assisted living. We need, like, you know, we need more facilities where somebody can go get help. The reason that Nevada is the last in the country in mental health is because the providers, the people that are diagnosed with mental health issues in Nevada far exceed the number of providers. That's what makes us last place. 
we need more providers. We need more places for people to go. We need more folks helping. We need more helpers. We need more, and that's it, right? If you have 10 times the amount of people with mental illness, you know, diagnosis, and you do the, the folks that can help them, then you got a problem. And then we also need more affordable housing situations. If you don't, if you don't have that, then the flow stops at some point. And we have to wait for people to fall out to get people in. And that's not going to improve anything. That's just going to keep it the same. And we could be the best outreach workers. And we could be the best shelter operators. And we could be the best safe camp operators. But unless there's an end game, and the end game is, you know, independent living, the stable housing with secured income, we're not going to be able to get to that if we don't have this piece, you know. So that is a piece of it. It's providers and it's, you know, affordable housing that we can get to. Mm-hmm. What else is going on in the world of taking care of the unhoused in Reno that you want people to know about? So we talked a little bit about the karma boxes and everything that's going on at Nevada Cares Campus for people who either want to get involved or just want to learn more. What do you want people to know that they're that they're not hearing in the news or, you know, that they're not familiar with yet? Is that um, there, there are there's agencies out there doing work that eat, sleep, and breathe this, the agencies need support. If you ask any agency out there what their number one issue is, they're going to tell you funding. We need to support the agencies that are producing, that are actually, that have a product, that are producing people, that are doing the work, that are like, you know, that are out there in the trenches. And I'm not just talking about Climate Box, like like Catholic Charities and NYEP, is an awesome agency. Like there's groups out there that are actually doing work that if they had more support, they'd be able to do more. And, and that's what it comes down to. We, you can only do what's in your sphere of influence. And if you don't really have the time or the, you know, and most of us don't, we're living our lives, right? We're nine to five doing our jobs and we're taking care of kids and there's never enough hours in a day. If, if, you, if you say that, you know, there's not enough hours in the day, you're doing all right because you're doing things. But having said that, if you want to like, if you want to help, identify these these agencies that are doing the helping and let the people that are that are good at what they do be able to do more. If you if you want to send me a list of of organizations and stuff, I can put that in the show notes too, so that people can have easy access to websites and know where to learn more. For sure, absolutely. I am curious about the kind of the mindset of of belongings and property, I think is really kind of interesting. And we talked about this before. So you showed me a picture of someone that had had to move her camp. And then you showed me a picture of a couple months later. And it was like half a city block of stuff. It was like 20 feet wide and 10 feet deep of just like tons and tons and tons of stuff. And I get when you are living this life where everything is super scarce, that it probably creates this mindset of, needing to keep stuff. It's this hoarding mentality of like, this might be valuable. This might be useful. I have to keep it because I don't have anything else. I wonder what, what challenges that brings. Cause like I've, I went down near the, the camp by the Wells bridge the other day. And like many people, it feels like a trash dump. There's like piles and piles of what could easily be described as, as trash. Like it's, there's not a lot of value. And the reason they clean these places up with a bulldozer and not, you know, going through and collecting all these valuable belongings is because of that. And I think as people see these camps, it creates this impression of like, it's dirty, it's unsanitary. Is part of the 
solution. And this, again, I hope this doesn't sound like super insensitive, but uh, helping people develop a set of skills around like what is actually valuable and useful to them and what is not. Again, I've never been homeless, but I did a big year long road trip where I was living out of my car. Super, super minimalist. I had just enough clothes for a week. I had a camp stove. I had one bin of food. I had money. So I didn't have that idea that like I need to keep my entire life and I need to like accumulate belongings because I always knew, okay, if I need something, I can always buy it. I just wonder, is there any kind of approach or value in helping people find a better way to be homeless? If you're, if you're, if you're living on the street and you have like three shopping carts piled full of stuff that you're clinging to because you feel like you don't have anything else, is there value in like teaching people who are living on the streets how to do so in a way that is healthier, that is safer, that is gives them more mobility, that gives them ways to not have your stuff stolen because you are being strategic in the things that you own and how you store them and move them? Let's just take unsheltered or homeless out of it. Take that word out of it. Everybody has an aunt that hoards things, right? Yeah. She just doesn't have to move a lot. She's in her house and she hoards things and it's there. And that's, that's a condition in and of itself. And why do we do it? There's psychological things behind it. Like it creates value. If I don't feel like I have value in here and then I can find value in other things. And I, you know, there's, there's all the stuff involved with that. And so can you convince somebody to be better at being unsheltered or home? Um, I'm going to say is you'll have as much luck doing that as you will to get your aunt to clean your house. And so, so that's, that's something else. That would be a long-term thing. Let's look at like, let's, for, let's start with trash, right? So trash, uh, the average American produces 10 pounds of trash a week, right? Per person per week, 10 pounds of trash. So I got three kids living in, there's three people living in my house, me and my two boys, 30 pounds of trash per week. When you go into these unsheltered homeless camps, they produce 40 pounds of trash per person per week. And I'm not talking, that's not the things they're hoarding. That's the things that we're throwing away. Why is that? It's because we live a disposable lifestyle. And it's because when people bring things out, we take all that we can. And that's also not just a homeless thing. That's if I were to go, if you and I were to go take a banquet table, we take a banquet table, we set it out in South Meadows and we put a sign on it that says free right in the front. And then we take unlabeled boxes and we put them on the banquet table and on the boxes, like inside the boxes are rattlesnakes. People will take the boxes. They might even take three, you know, because it's free. It's just who we are. We're humans. We want free stuff, but we also do it down in the camps. And when we do it down in the camps, it has more of a negative effect because these items can be a barrier to somebody getting off the river because they find you give it to me right now it's mine and it has value because it's mine and i'm not going to throw it away and so these these things not only do they cause a, a big you know do they take up a lot of space and they and they're an eyesore but they also are what limits people from getting off the river or getting off of the streets because they're because of their things because i can't go to the shelter with all these things that these people gave me from this perspective of like how can we help it would be instead of bringing somebody a box of clothes and saying, take what you need, it would be, how can I get you to a place to get you clothes? 
to where you have the not where I've seen people, I've seen people take bags of clothes, drive out to the homeless camp and drop the bag off. And people are just picking through it and rifling through it and fighting over jackets. One guy had the arm with one jacket and the other guy had the arm with the other. And they're doing this standoff and they're circling each other because I grabbed it first. No, I grabbed it first. If you want to help, you take people to the places where they can get it. Not only does that like have a little bit of dignity where they're actually you have to go into a place and they get to pick their clothes because Catholic charity has a place where they sell clothes. Uh, the gospel mission does and that they even have places that just give out clothes, but they set up a scenario to where, cause look, if you just go out there and you dump your clothes off, you're just doing spring cleaning and it's actually illegal dumping. Dump your clothes off at a, at a, at a homeless camp. Don't do it, dude. It's bad. Right? Not only will it contribute to the mess, but you're, but it's there's no dignity in that. Like, If you really want to help, donate your stuff to the Catholic Charities. If you want to see somebody take your stuff, take the clothes because it feels good, and actually take them shopping. That feels better, you know? And not only are you getting them to a place, and not only are you, like, you know, feeding a little into a little more of their dignity, but you're also showing them where to get the services, you know? You're also, like, mirroring the behavior you want them to display a lot of that falls on us bringing out our things and it feels good yeah it does we're bringing things out but it's i don't think we're going about it the right way we don't dump our clothes out there don't like do your spring cleaning and then bring it out to a shelter because you're helping the homeless you're actually you might be causing a bigger problem you want to help the homeless give it to an agency let them set that up if you want to you know if you really want to help someone get some pants Who's, who's been wearing the same pants for months, then, dude, drive them down to Catholic Charities and let them buy a new pair mm-hmm. instead of dumping stuff on them and saying, take what you need because we'll take it all. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I Again, I, I'm always hesitant to try to put myself in the shoes of someone who's dealing with something that I have no experience in. You know, I think a lot of people do this, and I hear this from people who – have like a negative view of homeless people and they'll talk as if like, Oh, I would do, you know, I would do this or I would do that. And why don't they do this? And I think that's, it's a pretty shitty way to approach the subject when you don't really know, and you don't know the reality of the situation, but these kind of questions do come up to me sometimes, right? Just think like, wouldn't it make more sense to do things in a different way? So I'm glad that, that you were able to answer that for me and kind of give me a, you know, a little more background on, on why it's important, especially the dignity part, I think is, big that there's a lot of protection around the current camps. There's, you know, obviously this, they're cleaning up and they're, they're kicking people out and they're sweeping these camps. And there's a lot of pushback from people that are trying to protect, protect, protect the camps as they exist now. Right. Like I just, I can't imagine. And again, I haven't gone down and talked to many people, but I just have a hard time wrapping my brain around the idea that people who are actually living in these camps see that as the best option for them. I mean, maybe again, maybe they have hesitations around the shelter environment or they have legitimate concerns about changing the way that they're living or the program that they would be going into things like that. But I just have a hard time accepting the camps as they are and saying, okay, well, let's just keep, just keep bringing stuff down. Just, you know, bring down more clothes, bring down more food. Let's let this thing be what it is. And that doesn't seem to have any kind of endpoint that brings any of those people out of homelessness. Like, do people come out of the camps if the whole structure around them is just let them be and bring them stuff? Like, does that 
who did, did people come out of that? Absolutely not. Like it, it causes a deflation of psychological drive where you don't allow somebody to frame their day and map out what they're going to do. Right. So if I bring you everything you need, where you're at, it takes the, the mapping of creating your day. When you wake up, you got problems to solve, right? You got to, you know, what am I going to eat for breakfast? And I got to get to work, but there's this, there's an accident on this street. So I'll have to navigate that way around there. And I'll have to, and you have to frame your day. You have your schedule, you have your appointments. You have to, if I got to be there at 11 o'clock and I'm 15 minutes from there, then I should be leaving at 1030. So that just in case something, we have to frame our day and we have to map that out. We have to visualize what the day is going to look like. If you take that away from somebody by bringing them everything they need directly to them, then you deflate the psychological drive and you stop them from creating their own day. You stop someone from creating their day. If you want to help somebody, help them create their day. Don't take the psychological drive to go do things. And when you take the psychological drive to go do things away from people, then you're, then you're also taking away their ability to have self-efficacy, right? It's like, I just did that. I went out and I created my day. We can't rob people of this. It's an unintended consequence. We feel like we're doing right things when we bring it out directly to them. But you also take away their their ability to to build self-efficacy and their and their capacity to to map out their day and create their own day. Mm-hmm. Like you just took that from them. And it, believe, whether you think about it or not, there's a power differential there. And you just took that away. Again, I'm not like saying that it's you know not okay to help. But there are unintended consequences in things that we do. And if we're not like thinking out exactly what happens, like think about if somebody brought you everything to your door, they brought you all the food, they brought you clothes and they brought you everything to your door and kept you right there. And if you were addicted, you didn't have to worry about anything else, drugs, because, you know, about staying high. And so now our shift has focused from actually like creating our days to just how can I stay here? And it's not just about being addicted. There's a lot of other variables. You can't like really, like I said, there's, it's really complex, but I think it's important that if we, if we help, we like, we think it out. And I just want to mention one thing too, because people are like, you know, well, you're, you're putting things in karma boxes. They're giving them things in karma boxes. And like, well, yeah, of course, but you have to find the karma box. You have to walk to it, you know? Right. So, <laughs> and the karma box project isn't just about the box and the things it's about putting things in there. It's a reciprocal relationship that happens between people that have the ability to give and people that at this moment need, because somebody that needs at this moment might not always need, they might be actually flipping to the ones that are the give doing the giving. So that's, you got to find the boxes. You got to get to them. The boxes don't come directly to you. Right. Yeah. I just, I wonder if the line to walk is between providing the essentials, the things that people need, people need things we need people need to be fed they need to be clothed they need shelter they need tents like if if you're living on the street there are things that you do need but there also like you said is this psychological drive to improve ourselves to do things to plan our day to feel like we have a a purpose and it seems like a a difficult needle to thread you know like you want to provide things but you also don't want to you don't want to make people jump through hoops just for the sake of jumping through hoops like that's a little dehumanizing to say like oh well i'll give you this thing 
but only if you meet like this and this condition and you do this thing first can seem a little bit insensitive. So I, I think there's this fine line to walk of giving people autonomy and ability to feel like they are taking care of themselves in some way and that they're owning their own lives, but also not telling them like, hey, the the struggle is part of the growth. So good luck, buddy. Totally agree. Yeah, yep. And and but but that that also comes with knowing the person. So you can there's something you tell a guy, hey dude, so the Catholic charities is right here if you get to this and that. But some folks you'll have to take down there, right? There's a level of commitment to helping folks. And in order to properly help someone, you might have to you might have to know them. So what that opens up is like if that it takes a little more time and it takes a little more energy if you really want to help like you can there's three ways to help people one you can help somebody survive which is just bring them food and bring them clothes the other is that you can help them stabilize which is get them get them into a condition where they're able to be employable where they're working where they can you know finally where they can get a place to stay and, and live somewhere off the streets or or get someone into a shelter and then the third one is you can help them thrive the the second one is, you know, where you, we get them somewhere. But the third one, which is thrive, you know, second one, stabilize, get them somewhere. Third one, which is thrive, is how do I get you to keep it? So we can get all the things in the world. You can get someone into housing. You can get someone a job. How do I get you to keep this job? You know, if you only do the survive one without keeping the stabilize and thrive in mind, you're actually, it, you, it could actually be doing, causing a problem. It can actually be a, an issue. And in order to like do it properly is that like each person has their own individual capacity, like they have their own capacity to do things. Like, I mean, you have to know that, like you have to know that like some folks are going to need some handholding, mm-hmm. you know, and it's easy to just hand somebody someone something and leave. It doesn't, it's not easy to be able to get to know somebody and know what, the, what is their sense of belonging, what gives them a, a sense of, control of one's life what gives them a sense of security like it takes time to do that and extract those things from a person and that's what you have to do to be able to help somebody stabilize and thrive it's a, it's a like i said it's complex man and you and you're right it's a it's a line it's a weird line and it takes a lot of work do you think that's something that's missing from people who want to help but don't know how is that they don't actually have these individual relationships with people they view unsheltered people as kind of this monolith or this idea of, okay, they all have the same basic need. So we're going to provide this basic thing and, and call it a day. And there's not, are there enough people that are individually addressing the needs of particular people that are dealing with homelessness? I don't know what the, the situation looks like as far as number of volunteers and advocates and programs. Obviously a lot of people are completely slipping through the cracks and they don't have any caseworker or any person that's directly helping them. Do you think that part of the solution is just more personal interaction and understanding of people's individual cases? And how do we, how do you fix that? Because I think for most people, I, I mean, myself included, to be honest, probably wouldn't be that comfortable just jumping into like, Hey, I want to help a, random person. I don't know how to do that. I don't know who to talk to. Like there's these inherent biases and like this scary notion of a different world. And I think a lot of people are hesitant to get directly involved because it's, um, you know, it's, it's intimidating. It's scary for, I think the typical person, how do you, how do you solve that? Like, how do we get more of these individual stories and individual cases to 
people who are willing and able to actually help folks in a way that is most beneficial for them rather than treating this as just like a big single monolithic solution for a problem when obviously it's much more nuanced than you know varies person to person well i guess that so that's a very good question because you have to it comes down to that person like if you really if you want to help one thing that i've learned is that altruism has a half-life right somebody wants to do something inspired to do something and then we'll do it for a little bit and then we'll we'll filter out something else happens in life and so we'll we'll filter out and it just it just comes down to like what are you willing to do and how much stock are you willing to put into it you know how much time and energy you're willing to put into it what do you want to know and how like so it comes down to what you're what you're willing to do and how much energy you put into it because it does it does take a lot of energy and it takes a lot of time and it takes what you're doing right now is asking questions well what you know how do i you know how do we do this how can we help on a larger scale what if i do just have the if i just have the time and energy to you know drop off a box of clothes do i drop it off to the camp or do i bring it to catholic charities if i just have the time and energy to donate food do i donate it to a food bank or do i drop it off at a camp you, you take what you have the capacity to do and then you go from there if you do have the capacity to go out and find out what someone's needs are and help them achieve those there's two kinds of needs right there's a need to stay to how can i what do i need to stay exactly where i'm at and survive here be successful here or what do i need to climb out of here and a lot of us are the easy thing to do is to find out what somebody needs to stay put the difficult thing to do is to find out what somebody needs to grow and if we do one of them too much then we make it difficult for the second need. So if we help somebody stay put too much and successfully be homeless, the, the more you do that, the, the more difficult this is going to be. Because it's going to be more difficult to convince somebody because it takes more work for the second one. It takes a lot more work to get someone's needs to get out, right? What do you need? I need an ID. I need a social security card. I need to get a job. I need, you know, I, I need to, um, I need to pay my fines off so that I can get my driver's license so I can get the job driving the trucks that I was doing before. I need this. That takes, it takes more time and it takes a lot, but a bungee cord and a tarp and a tent, like I could just go buy it for you and drop it off, mm -hmm. you know? And that's a that's actually a harm reduction model, right? If it's so cold out and you're living in your tent, you have nowhere to go and you need a blanket right now. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. But what's next? What's next? The idea is that if you can get to independent living, that's where you want to get them. Like to, the harm reduction. Absolutely. We want to help you right now. But if you're going to be in that position, you know, you also have to look to, okay, if, that it might, that blanket might get lost again. That blanket might get wet in the snow again. And then if you don't look to the second way of helping, you know, the second set of needs that people need, that they need to get out, like what they're going to need to get out. If you don't look at that, then you're going to continue to bring blankets. Mm -hmm. You're going to continue to bring blankets. You'll continue to bring food. This, that helping someone survive should be a vehicle to helping someone stabilize. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that, I think it's not just on issues of helping homeless people as well. I think we ha as a culture have this mindset of convenience and quick solutions and short-term thinking that seems to 
trickle into uh, the work that we do to help homeless people too, right? Like everyone wants a quick solution and everyone wants to feel good about themselves. And I think there is this tendency to be like, okay, cool. I'll just throw some money at this group that, that delivers food or I'll just, you know, like you said, dump clothes at the, at the camp that gives us this boost of, Oh, look, I did a, a nice thing, but it doesn't actually take any of the emotional labor. You're not challenging any of your biases or your, concerns around actually interacting with people that are dealing with these things. It seems like it's helpful, sure, but it seems like a kind of society-wide thing to look for the easy answer that makes us feel good without actually delving into the the hard part of the longer term, the more nuanced, the more challenging things around this. And, and that's not even to talk about things like drug addiction and, and mental health issues. Like sometimes the solution for someone isn't just giving them these basic needs. It's like actual serious health care yeah. in terms of long-term programs, in terms of ongoing care. And as just a normal person who wants to like help out a little bit, I can't get someone into a mental health care program or I can't get someone on psychiatric medications. I can't get someone into um, you know, a sober living. So it's easier for the typical person to just be like, oh, okay, well, there's the quick thing. We can just do the quick thing. And so I feel like harm reduction is it's good and it's important, but maybe it is too much the default for folks that want to help and don't know how. So it leads to these short-term solutions that don't actually get to the roots of the problem. Yeah. Okay. Again, it's harm, harm reduction. It's absolutely necessary, but like to what degree and we have to understand our role in the bigger picture if the idea is to, that we're, again, that we're all rowing in this boat to get to a destination healthy community, you can do that. But if you're going to do that, it should be a vehicle to get this person back rowing again by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes a lot of work. And some people will never really be able to row by themselves. There's folks out there that are like in really bad shape as far as mental illness and as far as, you know, you know, there's there's a there's some folks out there that are in a lot of bad shape that might not ever be able to live independently. There are programs for them. And what if you we look into some sort of guardianship? And what if we look into this? And there's things you can do, but they take work, and and it takes a building the trust of this person. And it takes like trust is a is an interesting thing, and it, and it does take a lot of time. And that's between you and that person. And in order to build that, yeah, you have to. It's going to take a lot of time. Yeah. The, the, I guess since you mentioned trust, that's one of the other last questions I'll ask you is for people that are dealing with homelessness and that have people that are coming to help. Do you think that trust is a huge part of that process? Like when you were dealing with homelessness and you were dealing with these issues, I'm sure that there were people who were showing up trying to help. What did it take for you to actually take advantage of that help and work with those people if just some random stranger comes in or they're from some organization you don't know and they're like, Hey, I'm here to help you. What is your reaction to that as someone who's actually dealing with homelessness? Everybody comes out and says, Hey, I'm willing to help you. Hey, I'm willing to help you. I got some food. I got some clothes. Like I got, and that's, that's good. But what it, what it takes is for me was authenticity and consistency. So what a lot of folks do is they overpromise and underdeliver. If you promise me something, then just follow through with it. But a lot of folks promise some stuff, realize that there's a lot of work that goes into helping with that and then just under deliver. And so that breaks trust. The idea is to under promise, over deliver and be consistent. That's it. 
that's what that's what that's what helped me. The people that like helped me were authentic. I could I could feel it. I felt it that they really gave a shit about me, and they always showed up. And whatever they said they were gonna do, they fucking did it, dude. That's it. Excellent. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Is you know, show up, deliver, be consistent. And if you want to get involved, like I said, I'll uh, I'll put some links in the in the show notes for listeners so that they can know organizations. I'll put a link to Karma Box, and hopefully, people who are listening, if they want to get involved, can find a good way to do so. Right on, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Grant. I really appreciate getting to talk to someone who, you know, who knows what's going on from the inside and out, who has seen what works and what doesn't, and who's actively working in our community right now to make things better for people. So, so thanks for all the work you're doing. I appreciate you coming on to, to talk about it. Awesome. Right on, man. Thanks for having me. Listeners, thank you again for tuning into this week's episode and a special thank you to Grant Denton, my guest this week. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and thank you for all the work that you are doing in the community. Homelessness is a major issue in Reno right now, and I appreciate everyone who is doing their best to help find solutions, get people on a better path, provide resources, all of the things that we need to be doing for our unhoused community. So thank you, Grant, for the work you're doing. Thank you, listeners, for being involved. If you would like ways to get involved, please check out the show notes. I have some links there to local organizations you can contribute or volunteer with. And that's all for this week. See you next time. (laughs) 